the Death Star of fantasy baseball, destroying all in his path, forcing entire galaxies to... Uh, nah, who are we kidding? Yeah, they call him Lord Zola in the industry, but we just call him Todd Zola. And he's up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 1st. It's show number 5 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season and our first Tuesday Tout Edition. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and it's my pleasure to bring back a fantasy expert who is very familiar to listeners of Baseball HQ Radio from Masters Ball ESPN and now lending his prodigious talents to rotowire.com. It's our old pal Todd Zola. We'll talk with Todd about the recent labor mix draft, about his strategy and tactics, and some of the other stories from that draft. We'll talk about how to use ADPs to rank players for your own draft, and we'll even get into converting ADPs to dollar values for auction leagues. It's another great show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Lord Zola is on deck. We... Cut that out. We gotta talk some baseball. And let's throw out the first pitch, our feature interview with our Tuesday tout for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire.com. It's Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to the show. I've uh, missed our little talks. Great to be back. It's great to have you. I'd like to start by talking about the Labor Mixed Draft. It was held a couple of weeks ago now, but still very interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, you had the fourth pick, which I have heard people say is the, about as low as you want to go before you go. All, you want to be all the way down at the other end of the draft. Now, is the names out of a hat or Kentucky Derby at Labor? Uh, names out of a hat. And how, how did you feel when you got fourth? I, um, I, I was okay with it. Um, I, I ended well, we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll reveal who I took in a minute, but I don't know. I, I was a little uncomfortable with it. I was actually hoping it would go in a different direction and I would really like fourth and having my guy fall to me at number four. But, uh, I do agree with the notion that if you don't get a top four pick, if you, especially if you are okay with Clayton Kershaw, that you want to be at the back end if you do have the Kentucky Derby style. Uh, you know, once you get past the first four picks, uh, you know, five through 20 are throw them in a hat and pick them out and they're the same player. But, uh, yeah, when I was at four, I was actually, I mean, I was hoping it would go in a different direction, but once it became, I got Clayton Kershaw. Once Kershaw was my guy, I was okay with it. You were, uh, expecting Kershaw to go one, two, or three, which means you were hoping one of the top three guys, uh, Trout, Goldschmidt, or Harper would fall to you? Yeah, I, uh, Jeff Erickson has been, uh, you may have, uh, very, he's a Clayton Kershaw guy. He, you know, he's not afraid to draft Kershaw early. Now, he was very clever, though, because Jeff also knew what will likely be available for him at the 2-3 turn. And uh, so he ended up getting Mike Trout first, and he knew we could get uh, two two of the top pitchers, and that's how he wanted to build his team. So he, he used it more of a team construct situation than, than anything else. And uh, I was sort of hoping that he would take Kershaw, and I was hoping, I was hoping Girl, Goldschmidt would fall to me, although... I'm less, I'm, I'm less into Goldschmidt being better than Trout now that Gene Segura is going to be his, uh, hitting in front of him. Not that Indian Sarardi was that great, but <laughs> if, if the difference, if the reason I'm putting Goldschmidt over Trout is because of their run plus RBI potential, I'm not so sure anymore 
that uh, that that should be the reason. I think it, it, to me at this point they're pretty much a tie. But uh, but anyway, um, yeah, got Kershaw fourth, and uh, you know, figured you don't want to do that blind. You need to think about what you're going to then do. And because I had fifty fifty chance that that was going to happen, uh, had spent some time before the draft plotting what I would do when I had Kershaw as my first pick. Did you ever give any thought to Anthony Rizzo? He went fifth, and I know he, he, you've always been a, a big Anthony Rizzo guy. You can talk about this with any player. It's I'm a big guy at the price that I think you can get him at, and I'm not a fan of Anthony Rizzo at, at four, five, or six. You know, I'm a huge fan of Anthony Rizzo at the at the turn in a 15-team league, uh, but I'm not such a fan. So that even if even if you know even if I had the fifth pick, which you know, I, you know a lot of people think is the worst pick on the board, he wouldn't have been my uh, he wouldn't have been the pick at five. Oh, okay, then uh, who would have? Either Manny Mikado or Josh Donaldson, depending how I was feeling that day. Uh, there's a lot of risk involved with Mikado, but the upside is still pretty huge. Um, I've always, I don't know, it may be the wrong way to think about Toronto, but you know, you're in the area, so you've seen them play. They had a historical year as far as runs scored. Not so much in a, you know, the number, you know, plenty of teams scored more runs, but the, the difference between Toronto and like the next team was just historical. To me, they just can't score that many runs again. They just they just can't. And if they don't, well, they could. But I don't think they will. You know, if they don't, then the the players are not going to hit as well. You know, Donaldson and 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 Encarnacion and Batista. And all it takes is an injury to one of them, and it's down. But so I don't know. I kind of tempered Donaldson's production a little bit, uh, even if he hits the same number of homers. You know, maybe fewer runs and fewer RBI, and he dropped down my list a bit. But I don't know. If everybody stays healthy, why can't they score that number of runs again? So it would be how I felt at the time between Mikado and Donaldson at that five hole. But I can get either of them later, too. I mean, Donaldson went 12th, I think, in, in labor. So that's why you want to have a wheel pick. Four third basemen taken in that first round. The first one to Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com, Arenado of Colorado, and then Machado went after him. Then way down uh, four or five picks later, Donaldson and Chris Bryant. And I was, I said in the Master Notes a couple of weeks ago, I was surprised uh, that I don't think I would have taken Chris Bryant in the first round considering some of the other options that were available that are just more established at that high pick. Yeah, Bryant is not a guy that uh, that I'm into at that at that price. Arenado even, I, I did a piece on Arenado, and I see a lot of red flags as far as uh, maintaining some of the numbers that he had. He the, the homers, he just hit a huge spike in home run per fly ball. And, yeah, he'll probably maintain some of it just because he's at that age. But he also had a, a batting average of runners in scoring position that was just 80, I think 80 points higher than his, his batting average over the season. And normally it's around five points higher. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that when you're hitting with runners in scoring position, the pitcher's going from the uh, from the stretch more often than not, and it's just the skills of the pitcher's a little bit lower. So 80, it, it, you know, well, is Aaron out of clutch? Well, I don't think either of us believe that it was because he's clutch. So even if he hits the exact same number of homers, I think he's going to get fewer RBI because he's not going to have that same batting average runner in scoring position. So it just worked out that uh, fifth fifth would be a little bit high for me. You know, at this point, now that I'm thinking about, uh, and a lot, a lot of this has to do with the first pitch forum uh, over the weekend, and, and, and hearing our friend Ron Chandler's presentation, I may even have gone with Carlos Stanton, or I may go with Carlos Stanton at number Giancarlo Stanton at number five, if uh, if that situation, uh, if I have that opportunity going forward. 
Stanton again, I think he went seventh overall, maybe eighth, something like that in the, in the labor draft. And I thought that was a little high because of Stanton's obvious injury risk. I don't think he's had 500 at bats maybe ever. That's the thing. You're betting on health, but the skills are there and he has shown the skills. So, I mean, that, that to me is why you don't want that, that, that pick. I mean, people, plenty of people are going to take Carlos Correa there and I, I'm not going to do that. So that's why, that's why you don't want the number five because, you know, I, I think I have AJ Pollock as the fifth ranked hitter on my board, but I think I you know I'd rather wait to see if he falls to me in the second round than absorb any possible upside by taking him fifth overall. Which in fact he did. AJ Pollock was on the wheel at the end of the first start of the second, so you could say that he was second round, first round. It's the same thing. Uh, him and Max Scherzer went at the turn to USA Today's fantasy guy Keith Hernandez. Uh, the last uh, thing I want to ask you about is Carlos Correa. He went after Stanton, and meanwhile, you had McCutcheon still on the board, Miguel Cabrera was still on the board, Donaldson we already mentioned, and Jose Altuve, who was the most valuable fantasy player in the American League last year because of all the steals and a slight uptick in home runs. Taking guys like Stanton and Correa, again, to me, just seems like an unacceptable risk with a pick that is largely in a, in a straight draft, snake draft type format, is going to make or break your team. There are certain guys, and I think Stanton's one of them, that, and uh, our friend Chris List makes this point a lot, and that haven't done it before. Now, if they if they show the pedigree in the minors, then Chris will make the argument, well, they have done it before, just not in the majors. So I don't know, you know, they just they haven't done it in the majors yet. So I can go both ways in that argument. The problem with Correa was until last year, he hadn't done it to this level before. He had a great, you know, the minors. The, the power went up and it, it persisted, but it wasn't like he's been hitting for home runs for his entire. He hasn't had a long minor league career, but this is the, the power went up huge last year. So I don't know that the argument is the same that he's done it before in the minors because until last year he hadn't. You know, obviously a very, very, very good prospect, but it wasn't. You know, I don't think anybody thought he was going to be a thirty home run guy uh, as part of his as a tool set. So that that to me is the, is sort of the difference. People are drafting him for the upside, which I also understand. I'm learning more and more and more in these industry leagues and the high stake leagues that no one cares who came in second. Heck, sometimes no one cares who come in first. But uh, so I understand going for it a little earlier in a draft, and then you know I draft for safety early and and take my chances later. I understand why you may want to take some chances early. Uh, he's not a guy that I'm going to be taking my chances on. Now you took, uh, as we mentioned, you took Clayton Kershaw with the fourth overall pick, and then you sat around waiting uh, for your turn to come back. And some pretty good offensive guys went off the board while you were waiting. Uh, Mookie Betts, who I would put in the first round, uh, Starling Marte, borderline D. Gordon, another guy with a pretty good track record. You mentioned Encarnacion and Bautista, and you're sitting there waiting. And a couple of pitchers start going. I'm sure you were hoping that pitchers would be more popular, maybe giving you some options. Then uh, when you when you finally did get your turn, you took Charlie Blackman, and on the comeback, you took J.D. Martinez, two outfielders, and Todd, the, you know, the conventional wisdom says for scarcity reasons, with those high picks, given the choice of relatively equal guys, you should be going for infielders because they're harder to get, and yet you took these two outfielders. What was your thinking? I didn't go to that convention, so uh, I've been my, my convention says don't worry about scarcity. It doesn't exist. I will find my second baseman and my shortstop later, I'm not leaving stats on the table just to get my middle infielders. 
I mean, the, the, the guys, Robinson Cano, I mean, I actually like Robinson Cano, but I think that, you know, trying to match uh, J.D. Martinez is more of the profile. I'd rather have J.D. Martinez than Robinson Cano. Uh, and they can know when it's just a couple picks later. Uh, trying to figure out the next, the next middle infielder would have been Tulowitzki. Um, you know, I'd, ra- I'd rather have, uh, Charlie Blackman than Troy Tulowitzki. Um, I, you know, I'll get my middle infielders in a little bit. Uh, Brian Dozier went soon thereafter and, and Corey Seager. None of the, I'm not leaving stats on the table to reach for one of these guys. Um, I actually, uh, these were the, I may have, t- Todd Frazier went right before me. He may, he was pr- probably was in my queue, but, I think Blackman and Martinez, if I could have, you know, after taking Kershaw, write down who I want would be the ideal duo. That would have been it. Um, and that's the way uh, I'm not afraid. I want to leave an outfield spot or two later because I do think that you can fill in with guys you like. I don't want to use them all up, but I'm not leaving stats in the second and third round just to reach for a, what I, you know, a perceived scarce position. Now, Todd, you mentioned that you didn't want to take a middle infielder because of the uh, many other choices you had later in the draft, but what about you also had Chris Davis went after Blackman, uh, Votto went after Blackman. Uh, I wonder, did you consider either of those guys? Yeah, what I was, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm much more into team construct now, and I wanted a little power-speed combination at the top. So Davis was on my uh, on my radar, uh, it, Blackman first, and if Davis had fallen... I think I would have taken him over Martinez, but he went, actually he went right, he didn't even make it to the third round. He got taken in the second round. So I was just as happy, not just as happy, but very happy to take, uh, JD Martinez to pair up with Blackman, you know, starting off with a couple outfielders, but I got the nice power speed, uh, cushion or, or, or buffer or just foundation that I was looking for. You mentioned that you briefly entertained the thought of taking Chris Sale uh, a little earlier and, and really shoring up your pitching. You opted not to do that and followed the plan that you went in with. Uh, then you ended up getting Johnny Cueto in the fifth round as your number two. A lot of question marks about his health, uh, but uh, you say you're not so worried. I'm not so worried. He's been fairly durable. There was a, a few years ago, uh, I think you know one report said he, he's going to have Tommy John surgery the next day, and three days later, I think he threw an eight hit, you know, an eight an eight inning shutout or something like that. So I, I think there's concern, but it wasn't huge. He, uh, I think you may have mentioned that the playoffs. He actually had a good playoff game uh, towards the end, leading up to the playoffs. He didn't he didn't pitch Kansas City into the playoffs, but then he didn't need to. He didn't, but he showed during the playoffs that he he still can do it. I'm not going to take away. All the good stuff that he did for uh, a tough post-trade run with Kansas City, and he's going to a great park. He's going. He, I, if you believe in the whole number one and this sort of thing, you know, Madison Bumgarner is the guy. So he doesn't have to lead the staff. He, he's going to slide in behind Bumgarner. So and they've got a nice little bullpen there. I, I think good thing. If, if, if I'm, if I'm taking my. Uh, first pitcher a little bit late or taking Clayton Kershaw because I can wait on my second pitcher. I'm, I'm just as happy uh, waiting a little bit to get uh, Johnny Cueto uh, as my as my second pitcher. I, if I'm wait, What I meant to say is I'm waiting on pitching. If I end up with Cueto as my first pitcher and I'm, I, I'm not upset, I come right back with a second good starting pitcher. But to me, he's in the bottom of that. Clayshaw, Kershaw's in his own tier. He's in the bottom of that second tier. So had you got uh, Goldschmidt, say, fallen to you in round one and not Kershaw, then how soon would you have gotten for that ace and who might you have uh, put at the top of your list? 
Yeah, I don't know. I've got a bunch of I don't I don't know that I would have gone in the second round. It would have been a big decision in the third round because I don't think by that point I don't think by that point we would have known the the room where they were going to draft pitching. Now Jeff Jeff Erickson sort of got it going with Sale and Garrett Cole that at that two three turn, and Degrom and Price went right before me, so. I may have jumped in at that point because I may be sensing the run and that the uh, the industry folk may be catching up to the high-stakes arena as far as drafting pitching. And I may have gone for someone like Kluber at that point. Uh, I just think that he's just as good as he was this time last year. He just had some rough luck with a, with a hit rate. And we, we know about the horrible wins, which obviously is uh, not not predictable. So if I had done it, it would have been him. Or I may have just waited to the fourth and that's probably at this point thinking what I would have done. Would have waited to the fourth and tried to get a Carlos Carrasco or, or Sonny Gray or somebody, a guy like Cueto, uh, bottom of the first tier, and maybe come back in four or five and doubled up at that point. Were you surprised at all that Garrett Cole, uh, Jeff Erickson's a smart guy and he knows his players, uh, Garrett Cole ahead of Price, ahead of Granke, ahead of Kluber, ahead of Steven Strasburg? Uh, all all of these guys went after he took Garrett Cole. Did that surprise you at all? Does that he put so much stock in Garrett Cole? No, people. I, I think once you get past the top three, I think I said Kershaw is his own tier. I think there's <laughs> Kershaw's in a tier, Scherzer's in a tier, and then Chris Sale's in a tier, and then everybody's grouped together. Uh, there, I, there's some differentiation, differentiation, excuse me, between those guys. And uh, Cole is amongst the next set of pitchers that. That people, some people like him more, some people like him less. Uh, I don't. He's not as high up for me. Uh, I like Price more, Kluber more, some of these other guys a little bit more. But I'm, I'm not surprised having drafted with Jeff a lot to know that he would have, that uh, that would be the guy he would taking. Taking matter of fact, anyway, that's who I expected him to take, uh, Sale and, and Cole at that point, just from knowing the tendencies. Of, of the you know guys in the room having done a couple mocks etc. So not was I surprised that Jeff did it? No, would I have done that? No, because I he would have he wouldn't have been my second guy if I was looking to double up at the turn. When you look at your team overall, who's your favorite pick on a value basis? On the flow of the draft, I like I love Salvador Perez and I like uh, Kevin Pr towards the middle. I think that they uh, they fit my construct exactly what I wanted them to do. And I think I got him at, at good points of the draft. So I'll go with Sal Perez and uh, Kevin Pierre as a tie. And when did you get them? Uh, Perez in the ninth and PR, uh, Pilar in the tenth. And uh, if you could do it over again, what changes might you make as far as player selection? You know, it was towards the end. And uh, you know what? I, I, <laughs> it's the kiss of death to say I really, really love this team, but I really, really love this team. And it took to the late, in the early 20s, uh, I had had a couple guys in my queue, uh, Joaquin Benoit and Kevin Jepson, had some technical difficulties and didn't know it was my turn. And the time clock ran out and I got those guys. I wanted them, but I wanted them as a reserve. So if I had to do it over again, I would have paid better attention and not made out my reserve list while I'm still on the clock. And I missed out on Erasmo Ramirez, who I really, really like. And I missed out on, uh, top of my head, I forget who, but there was another hitter or another pitcher that I, I really, really wanted in that area, you know, for, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's my year and Jepson's the closer and I don't, you know, I don't worry about this, but that, that, you know, it's also kind of show and, and it had to do more with the strategy. I went in having 
Kershaw is my guy and just being able to execute that strategy pretty much the way I wanted to do it is why I feel good about the team. That is one advantage of having Clayton Kershaw as a as a, your first pick overall is that it does allow you to create a pretty a pretty solid idea of what you want to do execution wise. If you pick any higher, or if an offensive player falls to you at at a spot, uh, if if it's a second baseman, then it kind of you have to make a whole bunch of adjustments about when do you want your outfielders. If you take the outfielder, how do you adjust for all the rest of it? But knowing that you have your pitcher and you don't have to worry about it for a few rounds really allows you to establish the kind of strategy you want, and then the focus, as you said, becomes executing it. Right now, I had I had done a league where I got Kershaw, but he was I think he was the ninth pick in that league, and I wasn't I wasn't planning on it, and it kind of just happened, and I didn't think it through. And I'm thinking, you know what? I took pitcher in the first round. I'm behind on counting stats. And I started just throwing darts at players to high upside guys to try to get make up the counting stats. And I just hated the team. I even forget who the guys were at this point. But I ended up hating the team. And so when I had a figured I chanted Kershaw, you know, I said, that was stupid. You've got Clayton Kershaw on your team. You don't need to take chances. You don't, What you need to do is not blow it. He's going to give you such a great base so, you know, you know, people like to overload the pitching because they have Kershaw. No, my staff, I still want it to be constructed to get around the same number of points as always. But you don't need to make up for hitting. You just need not to lose. You need to get what you need. So if I get a few extra hitting points in normal and a couple fewer, a couple less hitting points in normal, I still win the league. So this league needs around 115 or so. So if I go 65-50 instead of... What you know, sixty or whatever the numbers, whatever the numbers turn out to, be, a few more hitting points uh, than normal, a few less than normal. I'm fine. So don't blow it with Kershaw. You don't have to take the chances because you didn't have that stud hitter to start. And especially at nine, because uh, you're going to get a decent hitter coming back after the turn. You know, it obviously isn't going to be a, an Anthony Rizzo type of hitter. But uh, in this draft, you know, I think uh, I said Mookie Betts fell through to the second round. There were there were good hitters available after the first uh, round was over. Yeah, if if they, if if they happen to be ninth, I'm looking at Encarnacion. I'm looking at Jose Bautista. A couple of Blue Jays. I'm looking at Jose Abreu. So yeah, you could have still gotten a pretty uh, a pretty good bat uh, at, at nine. I feel I got a couple good, but I mean, you know, Blackman. I think Blackman and Martinez. You know, they don't have eight or seven, seven or eight years of track record, but I think their skill set is solid enough that I'm comfortable setting my foundation with those two. And I didn't feel as though I had to reach for a guy in the uh, in the third round. Uh, George Springer or somebody like that to uh, who, who fell a couple picks later. Nothing wrong with taking a George Springer and going for the upside, but I don't feel I needed the upside when I have Clayton Kershaw. I want the stability. I want the floor. I don't want the ceiling. Especially in those early rounds. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, there was an animated discussion in the BaseballHQ.com subscribers about how to use ADPs, and uh, it was a interesting discussion that you took part in. So let me just ask you, when, when people say, I look at these ADPs and I need to try to calibrate them to my league. How do you go about that? I tell them they're making a mistake, first of all, uh, unless unless it happens to be. Now, we mentioned that HQ uses the NFBC ADPs. If they're, if they're doing a draft championship league, which those are generated from, then they have a bit more value than, you know, than even the labor league. People were – I actually heard people commenting on picks – Based upon the ADP of the of the NFPC 
labor league picks and it's not quite apples and oranges but it's uh it's 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 it's, it's they're different they're both 15 team leagues but that's that's a, it kind of ends there uh nfbc uh it's very aggressive with pitching these are draft championships which are 50 50 round draft and hold which matters as far as your strategy and as far as your risk and that sort of thing goes uh the nfbc high stakes is known for taking pitching early if pitching goes early that means hitters gets pushed down so you know uh, i think that's what i'm referring to as far as i remember someone talking about a hitter and saying i can't believe they were a fourth round adp they you know they're a second or third round player but if the second and third round are so full of pitchers where the hitters gonna go somewhere and they gotta go in the next round so uh you have to sort of keep that in mind it's not on a, on a relative basis. You can get a feel for the the market might like you know. You mentioned Garrett Cole. You know where where does the market like Garrett Cole compared to Strasburg and Kluber and Degrom et cetera? You can, but that's still it's it's an overall thing. It doesn't mean your league's going to like him like that. So I I don't I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pound my fist in the table and say ADPs are useless because I can give you a couple ideas where I actually used it in the labor draft. But man, they are not a ranking list. I would not if I would not want to go to a, a use that as my default draft list. I should they're not a cheat sheet; they're a, a tool. Uh, I don't. What I do in, in in is I don't worry about the ADP. I have a certain expectation of that draft spot, and what I want I want my player to meet that expectation. And I really don't care what the if the market thinks it will, as long as I feel that player will meet that expectation, then I'm happy to put that guy in that spot. All right. Having said that, there's a player or two I just alluded to, uh, Kettle Marte. I, I know I like him more than most, so I, I don't mind having a feel for where the market. I'm not going to take him if I have him eighth round. If the market says they don't, I don't need to take him to the sixteenth. If I'm comfortable on the eighth round, I'm not. I don't. I don't have to. I could take him the eleventh, the twelfth, or thirteenth. Still get a nice little potential profit there, and not threaten somebody else liking him too, but yet not giving up all that potential by taking him eighth. When I look at these ADPs, the thing I think of right away is, okay, for the first 12 to 20 picks, something like that, it's interesting to see how these guys move around. But when you get into the sixth, seventh, eight rounds, there's so much um, dynamic in the draft that you're in itself. Where did the pitcher run start? Where did the catcher run start? Where did the closer run start? That can skew these kind of uh, the, these kind of players up and down by two or three rounds very easily. And I know that averages are supposed to smooth that out. And if you get enough drafts in there, then you'll get a, a better idea. But the problem is that if your draft, all it takes for somebody to, to, to do is to take two closers at a turn an entire cycle earlier than you expect. And all of a sudden, all the closers in your league are going to jump up in the in your your league way above where they might be on the ADPs and it, and you can't ignore the fact that your league is doing something that is out of sync with the ADPs and you just have to ignore the ADP and do what you got to do. No, exactly. Now you mentioned first couple rounds, mentioned Jeff earlier, Jeff Erickson and the pitching. The reason he felt comfortable with Mike Trout and not taking Clayton Kershaw is based on ADPs. He felt he could get, he could double up with two starters he really liked at that turn. So that's why he, you know, I know for a fact, that's why he took Trout because, you know, based upon early returns, especially not, especially assuming that the mixed league uh, industry ex, industry folk haven't quite caught up to the pitching, he knew he was going to get two aces at that turn. So that is a use of the ADP. 
I mentioned, you know, a real outlier player like Marte for me. The other time is if you're close to the wheel and you want to get these two guys, sure, you can look to see who the, the people in between your pick is and know, all right, he's got two closers. I'm not going to take my closer next because, you know, I can wait in the closer. But it, it, may give you, it might give you a better idea of the timing, which player to take first to get a better chance of getting both. So those are sort of the two. I mean, I'm not. It's not useless. Is to you know a guy I happen to like a lot more than than the crowd, where I can get him in between and helping time my picks at the uh, at the at the wheel. If I'm in the middle, uh, I don't you know it's it's over. It doesn't. I, I can't. You can't time anything when you've got so many you know another 15 picks between you in your seventh or eighth. So I don't really the ADP doesn't matter. But you know your 12th or 13th or 14th, it comes in handy. But you mentioned Jeff's decision to to take Mike Trout with the first overall pick because he knows from ADPs that he's going to be able to get two aces at the two three turn. Didn't wouldn't he have known that if he'd never looked at an ADP list in in preparing for this at all? I mean, isn't it fairly obvious that barring some kind of very freakish run in in the second round on pitchers, that he 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 had to be pretty confident he was going to get two pretty good pitchers at that turn if that was his strategy, irrespective of what ADPs say. It's just, it just seems fairly obvious. The short answer to your question is yeah, I think that you probably could figure it out. Now, whether whether maybe maybe he took it a step further, and I don't know. Maybe what he said was, we mentioned Garrett Cole. Maybe the point being, I can get Garrett Cole at that point may have been a little bit more granular on his thinking, which I, I don't know. So maybe that was sort of the next step processing is that he said, you know, he's saying, so I could get two of these particular pitchers because you never know, you know, if, if he wanted, you know, if, if he wanted Scherzer and Sale, he wasn't going to get both of those guys. So maybe on a more granular, maybe he was thinking in a more granular level, the exact pitchers he was get. As a, and I don't usually think that way, which is maybe why it doesn't appeal to me to do that sort of thing. I want to get two of these eight guys. I don't want to get two of these three guys. I hope to get the chance to ask Jeff about it uh, sooner sooner or later because I, I'm really curious about how he made that decision and whether ADPs played a role in it. And had, for example, had somebody right before him grabbed either of those two pitchers, would he still have grabbed two pitchers? Would he have said, okay, I'll take Price and Granke, or okay, I'll take Cole and, uh, and Kluber. Just I want two top pitchers at that spot, and I'll just take the two I think are the best available irrespective of who they are. Yeah, good good question for Jeff, <laughs> for sure. A comment I have about the uh, dollar values versus ADPs, and this was another subject that came up in the thread, was how do you convert the ADP to dollar values for auction purposes? And again, uh, I don't think you can really do that with any kind of degree of accuracy. I know there are formulas and logarithms and so forth that try to figure out approximately what these guys are worth. But again, the dynamics of a draft league are so different from an auction that it seems, except for the very first few guys where you can get a kind of a peg on it and the dollar guys at the end, that everything in the middle is so dependent on draft context that to rely on anything, any kind of conversion table like that is, for want of a better term, it's applying a degree of precision you don't actually have. Right now, I've done it, but for other reasons. Now, I think one of the key, if you're going to do this, now you've got, HQ has a nice little formula uh, that, you know, it's, it comes in handy if that's what you want to do. But what you need to make sure you do is you use end of season earnings. When you do this, you, you, you take the end of season earnings, hittings and pitchers, put them in one column, and then just, you know, one to 350 or whatever the amount of picks are in the draft, and it, they just match up. Now, what, what HQ did 
was they figured out a best fit formula after doing that. But my, the only what I find interesting about it is, and is uh, once you start doing that, you notice dollar value wise, you know, a twelfth round player and a fourteenth round player are only like two or three bucks apart. So I don't really care what the number was. It just it get in my head. I'm now saying in an auction, do you do you mind overpaying three dollars? If that I hate the word overpaying. Do you mind paying three dollars more than expected to get a particular player if he fits your construct and you need him? No, in an auction you you, you wouldn't hesitate to to pay the extra three dollars. So in my mind that opens it up for the draft. Then if I really need that player for my team construct, I'll jump him up three rounds. So that's that's the really other that's sort of the the utility for me as opposed to knowing exactly what number you know what the dollar value in, in particular i think it just kind of it's interesting how uh you know 17th and 19th router rounder are probably separated by by less than less than a buck less than two bucks they're the same player essentially i think that's the key thing that we we uh, impose this extra de- degree of precision uh, you and i have talked about um larry Schechter, a fine rotisserie player a fine fantasy player in his own right in his book says you got to have your dollar values out to two places of decimal and that just seems to me to be to be in scientific terms a misuse of significant figures you know you, you you don't have that degree of precision at any point during the process it's quite incorrect to then apply it at the end of the process and say you know this to within you know two decimal places when if you look at the baseball hq from the custom draft guide you can make a grid and you can look across in the five to ten dollar grid and there's all these players and as you say, really, if you think about it, because of the lack of precision of the process, they're all pretty much the same. And that, and that the choices you make should have more to do with, is this guy a stolen base guy? Is this guy a batting average guy? Can I get more uh, ERA help from this pitcher? All these kind of considerations that really are beside the point on value, except as a very broad measure. Was a scientist in another life, and the, and the final answer can only be as precise as the inputs. And you know, I, not to rail on Larry, but he even talked about in his in his book that the inputs weren't all that precise. Well, if the inputs aren't precise, how can the output be precise? And you know, Larry, he's very successful. He can he can call scoreboard on me all day long. Uh, so you know, who am I to say? But you know, Larry didn't win because he his decimal his values were out to two decimal places. Larry wins because he really really knows baseball. And he's really, really disciplined during the auctions, and he really, really works hard during the season. So uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you need to do more than eighteen point sixty four dollars for, uh, you know, for, you know, some, you know, Ender Inciarte in an AL, NL only league or something like that. I was an art student in college and university, and and uh, I had to take a, a lab science to to qualify for my degree. I took astronomy. And I remember I was constantly getting marked down in my labs because I was putting things out to so many places of decimal and the professor would circle it and go, it's not just that the, that the outcome has to be the, the equal of the inputs in general. It has to be no better than the worst input that you have. Right. And uh, boy, w- once that took hold in my mind, I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. If if you're calibrating something in millions of kilometers, you can't then narrow it down to, you know, two and a half meters as far as distance goes. Yep, absolutely. And you know, applying it, it just means that there, once you get to the middle of, you know, even, at, you know what, even at the beginning, these players are so close, 
you know, just just give one guy 20 plate appearances, take 20 plate appearances away from the other guy, in that in a, in your little black box, the values flip. Now, if if you're if you're drafting that closely to the numbers, you know, you really you need to look at the a little bit more about the players and what 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 are the chances of this happen and what if he's dropped in the order more than the strict number of plate appearances you're giving him and and that sort of thing. Especially this is a little bit beyond. But you know, you, you change the replacement level of, of a player. You, Ron, you, Ron Uribe came into the American League. It might AL only values uh, in the in the box. Just third baseman just went up three dollars or down three dollars because it changed the replacement. You know, was Manny Machado really three dollars less because Juan Uribe is in the pool? Well, no. It's with multiple eligibility and corner and, and everything else. No, but if you if you force the positions and and do it just because of that extra player into the replacement pool, it, it you know it, it it changed things. So I mean, we'll talk and actually it's on the forum too. Maybe next time we can talk about catcher pricing and all this. But um, you know, it, Manny Mercado did not change in value because Juan Uribe came into the pool just because the replacement changed. And as Ron Chandler says, Todd, all of these values are very approximate anyway and if uh, if the HQ projection says that Manny Machado is going to be worth what $31 or $29 really that means he's going to be somewhere in a range of 25 to 35 the odds are that he's going to be closer to the center of that range than to one of the edges but the fact is we don't really know and you have to judge everything accordingly it's baseball HQ radio Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola and Todd in another baseballhq.com thread a forum member asked about the ratio of stats that are collected on draft day versus the stats that are collected the rest of the year through free agents. This is an interesting uh, problem when you're calculating things. He he thinks um, that if 10% of the home runs uh, will come from the free agent pool, but 20% of the stolen bases will come from the free agent pool of all the home runs and stolen bases available, then we ought to value home runs more highly at the auction because there are going to be fewer of them after the draft to go get out of the free agent pool. This seems to make sense to me on the surface, but what do you think about this idea that when you value a player, the valuation should reflect the scarcity of stats in the free agent pool? Well, the first first thought being, what's... is the reason that the stats are less because people are already valuing home runs more, and therefore they're drafting them more, and therefore there's just fewer of them. So what is what is the real reason for it? So that's the first thing is I think people there are enough other reasons to value home runs more than that is is I think and that I think the reason that there's so fewer number of home runs is because people are already valuing home runs more. The, uh, the the first reason being that a home run gets you an RBI, gets you a run, it counts your batting average, whereas a steal is a rather singular stat that you can you know you can get one player to steal you know you can pick up Jared Dyson although if he's starting this year maybe not you know last year's Jared Dyson and help you in the category um, more than you could pick up a home run you know, he can help the that one guy can help in that one category a lot more so. Therefore, you don't have to worry as much about it in the draft. You don't pick up that steals guys later if you need them. My more general answer is we don't know what we're going to need. I want to put as many stats on my roster as I possibly can. And we we talk about this as towards drafting towards targets. I want to, you know, X amount of home runs, X amount of steals. Well, at the end of a draft, I don't want to pick up Chris Carter 
just to make my home run number when there's a more balanced hitter out there that'll give me more overall production. We don't know where we're going to land in the categories. We, I may, it, it, you know, I need two more home runs to get another point or another steal to get another point. Let's let the season play out. And I've got 26 weeks to manage my team to, to maximize it. I don't want to give myself less of a foundation just because I think that, you know, the home runs are, there are fewer home runs in the free agent pool. So that's sort of, you know, the other approach to it is even if it was true, I want to have the best foundation as I can. I don't know where I'm going to be in these categories and I will figure out how to manage, you know, down the stretch to maximize the points. Yeah. The idea of the uh, categories, if you're playing that form, which most people do, I guess uh, there are points leagues I understand and other, other formats, but a lot of leagues play with these uh, rotisserie categories. And it's a really important thing because as you said, it's tempting for us and we uh, tend to rely on the, in the standings gains points method, on an assumption that it's going to take 10.5 home runs to move up a point, it's going to take 10.5 home runs more to get another point, and so up, so on up right to the top of the list. And in fact, anybody who's played the game even twice is going to realize that that's not how it works in those categories. Sometimes it takes you 15 home runs to gain a point, and then your next 15 home runs gain you six points, just because that's how the category happens to be bunched up, and it's pretty random. You know, there's no way to predict it ahead of time. How how many wins is it going to take to finish with, you know, top three in, in wins? You don't know. More importantly, what you don't know is how many more is it going to take you to move from third to second or how many less would cost you from third to fourth. It's impossible to say. And all of these things, all of this imprecision is something that gets baked into a lot of how we think about these values. And it just seems like we need to get our heads out of that space a little bit and into uh, what Chandler calls embracing the imprecision. I love the thought process or the idea that, we're, that they're thinking out of the box I, that just this just doesn't. I, I don't want to discourage that sort of thinking. I love that you're looking for the edge, but to me that this this one the answer was no. But keep thinking. You know, you can come up with a board question. And you, hey, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah, do that. So I don't want to discourage. Make it sound like I'm you know discourage, discouraging outside of the box thinking. It just happened to be that particular posed question. I'm not so sure. I agree that that's the way to go. I mean, real quick because it, 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 it ties in. Uh, to this whole home runs versus steals, uh, you know, that you need third or fourth place in most leagues to, and this also ties into the distribution of what we're talking about in the standings, third or fourth place in most leagues, if you come in that spot, you win the league. Now, if you uh, if you figure out how much you need to, to spend in an auction to come in third or fourth place, you need to actually spend more money on steals to come in third or fourth place because not just is it, you know, not, not only you're talking about linear, 10.5. The, the in general, the distribution of, of homers and steals are two completely different categories. Homers is more linear. It's not completely, but it's more linear. Where steals, uh, the two extreme, it's bunched in the middle. But then once you get to the extremes, it starts to spread out more. And so you, you can shoot for the middle of the of the steals category, knowing that the acquisition of one player is going to jump you up uh, a few more a few spots. So that's sort of I used to I did a piece on this ten years ago and I've actually seen a couple pieces recently on it and uh, I want to I'm going to pull out my old stuff and have it readily available to the public. I'm redesigning the Masters Ball website and kind of kind of bummed that I didn't get this out front, you know, because other people are now talking about it. I called it category efficiency rankings back in the day, 
And it's just another reason to go for the power because uh, you get more bang for your, you know, you spend $50 on power and $50 on steals, you get more home run points. You get more points in that category for the same amount you spend. And you get points, as you said before, in the RBI category. You get points in right. the runs category. A home run is a base hit, so it hurt. It helps you in the uh, batting average category. I mean, a home run is a singular event, and it's it's just worth more than a stolen base because it helps you ac- across the board more than that. And I think that's why guys who can hit home runs are just inherently more valuable than guys who steal bases. And, of course, guys who do both should exact a pretty significant premium for that reason. Paul Goldschmidt, with his what, 21 home runs he had uh, the other year, uh, and on top of uh, all those home runs and a very high batting average and on-base percentage, he, he was just an across-the-board very good producer and, and for that reason is definitely worth the price that it costs. Right. Now, we can argue you know, another week, will Goldschmidt steal 21 bases again? Uh, you know, There's there's reason. You know, actually, Ron, Ron Chandler has got some research that doesn't think that he will, uh, based upon first basemen and, and their history and, and what first basemen have done. And he makes a very, very, very valid argument. But yeah, sure. Once you get to that, you know, that's why, that's why to me, why I got Kevin PR, who I mentioned is so valuable is he, uh, in the middle of that draft, you want to get some speed, but I'm not completely, completely sacrificing power in order to get it. I'm going to get a few less stolen bases than if I had taken, say, Billy Burns or Ender Inciarte, but at those extra 15 home runs or 10 home runs over the speedster guy from Pilar, you know, I, I, I don't want to completely give up on the power to get my speed, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, uh, like I said, I can always get a stolen base guy if I have the power buffer to based on the categories, based on what I need at the end. Well, you can talk about this stuff all day, and I imagine by this time there are people uh, with their earbuds in thinking we just might. So I'd like <laughs> to wrap it up. You mentioned some work you're doing for Masters Ball. Of course, you're here at Baseball HQ Radio, and uh, you're doing work with ESPN as you were last year. But uh, something new, a little new wrinkle in your uh, fantasy baseball writing, you're uh, you're affiliated now also with Rotowire, a terrific site. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm a freelancer, so I, you know, I, I get to do, I don't want to say whatever I want, but I do have the freedom to uh, move around a bit, and um, I, people might remember I was with Fantasy Alarm, and great, great company, uh, left on very great terms. It's just that I liked the opportunity that Rotowire was offering me. Uh, I was like, you know, to, to, to you get you got two trade offers, and you just don't know you love them both. Which one are you going to accept? You got to you got to make a decision. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to be doing some stuff for Rotowire. I'm going to be doing uh, some podcasting with them and uh, on the radio and. Some writing some pieces and some blogs. It's a lot of you know behind the wall, but I will be writing a blog for Rotowire and uh, yeah, it's a well-established company. I think we've all heard of it, and um, very happy to uh, very happy to be able to make that decision. You know, you kind of feel blessed, and when ESPN and Rotowire, you know, and Baseball HQ are are paying your bills. You know, not. Uh, I feel pretty lucky about that. And it's a pretty solid indication that you're doing something right. Uh, one other word about Rotowire. Uh, I know that they're a competitor of BaseballHQ.com, and and uh, I think there's plenty of room for both of us in the market, frankly. And if if you're a, a really smart fantasy player, I think you'd get subscriptions to both because they there's enough differences in the offerings that uh, one complements the other really well. But the other thing I like about Rotowire is they're great people. I, I know. Uh, this business is full of great people, but we've been talking about Jeff Erickson. You mentioned Chris Liz. Everybody at Rotowire is just a, a terrific person. I think Jason Kletz over there. Uh, these are these are quality people that you get to work with. 
You know what? That was the toughest part about leaving Finish the Alarm because I can say the same thing about Rick Wolf and Howard Bender and Jeff Manns and Ted Schuster. There are every, there's, there's not a lot. I don't know if there's anybody in the industry I don't like, but yeah, that was the toughest part about leaving them was the, uh, you know, the, you know, we're your, your colleagues, but you're also friends. So that made it real, real tough. You know, we, you know, we know Glenn Colton. He's over with Alarm too, but you know, Derek Van Riper, all these guys over at, at Rotowire, we're just lucky. You know, that can grow through the HQ staff. One of the reasons I go for first pitch forums is to catch, you know, we saw Brian Rudd and Jeff Thomas yesterday in St. Louis to catch up and, and meet new guys. It's just a great industry as far as that goes. Uh, Ray Murphy will kill me if I don't ask you, are you going to be participating in any more of the first pitch forums down the stretch? I'm going to everyone. The only reason I'm not going to be in L.A. is because even I can't be in two places at one time. So uh, I just love these things. These are my, uh, they're part work, more vacation um, and I, you know, I, we got to, I do a lot of work during the season with ESPN and Rotowire as far as DFS and seasonal, it's a grind. So I get my, uh, my fun time in March and then I, you know, the grind and then get my fun time again with the first pitch in, in November, but I'll be in Houston and Atlanta next week. And then I'll be doing the Washington, New York, Boston swing the following week. But yeah, anybody out there in Houston and Atlanta, come check it out. Go to baseballhq.com. You'll see the uh, the link for the seminars, and I know they're still accepting uh, registrants. And I, I, having having seen the program for the last for the over the weekend, it's well, well, well worth it. All right, Todd. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, looking forward to it already, Patrick. Todd Zola, as you heard, works for uh, Baseball HQ Radio as well as Masters Ball, ESPN, and RotoWire. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the first. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout edition of the show, Todd Zola. It's always great to talk with Todd about fantasy baseball, both the theory and the practice. And remember, you can catch Todd and a bunch of other Baseball HQ experts at First Pitch Forums on the next three weekends. Check it out at BaseballHQ.com on the right side of the page, right under the Baseball HQ radio logo. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. And if you heard me say last Friday that Greg Fishwick would be on this show with his forecaster position preview, well, we couldn't make the logistics work on that, so Greg will have that valuable information for you later this week on the next Friday News and Commentary edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.